early 50s, but also it's on his heart now to learn German as he moves over to Berlin to help the church there. <laughs> it's good, yeah. And, um, you know, they've just been, they spent 10 years, they're part of a, uh, of a plan that uh, God, God does more than we ask or imagine. And back in 1987, we planted a church in Hong Kong knowing that actually the lease on Hong Kong would run out that the UK owned, and that Hong Kong would go back into, the, uh, into China. The most amazing thing is, uh, that's exactly what happened, but by the time Hong Kong was reabsorbed into China, we had a church of 2,000. Now, now it's hard to get money and support into China, but the great news is the church in Hong Kong by itself supports all of our mission work in China, uh, and there's like, I don't know, 20 churches now or something. So really exciting what God has done. But I, I love being with, with Scott. Scott's someone who likes to reflect on what's going on. Uh, he did a very thought-provoking lesson a few years ago, and it was um, just, don't do, just don't do something, stand there. <laughs> and we all were like, what's he talking about? But his whole point was slow down and think about what you're doing. <laughs> So I don't know what his lesson is today. I just know it's going to be great, and I turn the sermon over to Scott. Thank you. Very thoughtful, Roy. Thank you. He wanted to make sure that um, that we weren't off stage somehow. So it's good to see everybody today. Thank you so much for the wonderful and kind words uh, from Andy Fleming. Um, my, the title of my speech today is "Don't Just Stand There, Do Something." <laughs> no, no, some other things. In fact, if you want to be opening your Bible just to kind of move things along a little bit, we will be in Romans chapter 15 in just a few moments. But we wanted just to kind of say hello as new neighbors. We, uh, it's hard to believe that, that soon my name, I think, will be, uh, I think Mohan was telling me it should be Shatbud. Is that right? It sounds like something bad. <laughs> but I think that's Scott Green in German. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we're going to be neighbors. That's crazy. Um, it's going to be crazy, but we're glad to be here and, and glad to send greetings to Birmingham on its 25th anniversary and all the brothers and sisters from around the northern UK and from London. Uh, it, it's really awe-inspiring to be reacquainted, to make connections, uh, to have those hugs. It's wonderful to be with you today. Scott wanted me just to come up and get to say to all of you how much it's been a real pleasure to be part of the family for this month. And in a real special way, we're becoming family. I mean, we're living with the Flemings. So, Justin, thank you for letting us sort of bomb in on the family and really learn what it's like to be family. And like Tammy said at the beginning, that is one of the most precious gifts to me that we get to share. And so I have gotten to eat in many of your homes, be with you, see you as you really are, and hopefully you see me as I really am, and we still love each other in spite of that, and that's what means the most to me. And in a special way, I'm taking back pieces of you, because Sybil has given me a recipe for a truly English chicken and leek pie, which I will now be making. I have Fleming curry to go home and make. And really, those things, as we eat together with glad and sincere hearts, 
are the things that bind my heart to yours. So thank you for having us. Yes, um, I'm going to make sure that uh, this sermon will not go on too long, but I want to make sure that we're wide awake. So part of my new quest in, in uh, I don't know if I'm actually entitled to do this, but I feel entitled. That uh, now I have to learn another language. I'm going to learn German, so I'm, I'm telling the German brethren that they have to at least learn certain words along with me in Chinese, right? So I have to learn the whole language. They can learn just a few words. And so even today, the English can, and uh, the, or do we have any Scots here today? Yeah. And we have the Irish with us as well. I know we have Irish people. Right on. Okay, the United Kingdom. Anyone from Wales? Those are my wife's favorite people. Okay. In the world. Make sure you introduce yourself afterwards. She loves to meet Welsh people. Um, her father's name was Embry or Hembry. And I think that's a Welsh surname. At least that's the lore. So, uh, but I'll, I'm going to teach you a word in Cantonese. And uh, do you remember the, the great leader... Um, inspiring leader of South Africa, incarcerated for, I think it was, was it 30 years incarcerated and then leading South Africa? Sorry? 27. That's right, 27. English precision, thank you. <laughs> I, I have to say, on, on, you know, it's a funny note, I'm, I tend to be a mimic. If I get on the phone with you for very long, then my accent will shift away from being an American accent to something that's truly horrible. Because <laughs> it won't be English or Irish, or but it'll, it'll move away. And so it's humiliating to come up here and listen to people speak with such a beautiful accent. I know that the opposite isn't so. I've never heard a, an, a, a United Kingdom citizen come to America and say, oh, you people have such a lovely accent. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way, and um, but uh, it's it, it, it's humiliating to speak with an American accent when everybody just speaks so posh, right? I mean, it's just it's magnificent, and uh, it's a joy to be with you. But I'm going to teach you that word in Chinese, and so Nelson Mandela, can you say Mandela? Mandela. 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 Okay, now I want you to change the that that air sound to more of an ung, so it's Mandela. That's good. Say it again. Mandala. 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 That's good. That means in Cantonese, let's get out of here. <laughs> let's get out of here. Mandala. Okay, so if I go too long, I don't want to hear any mandalas. You can say that. You can say that later on in the fellowship. Uh, we're going to be looking here in Romans in a moment. And um, thank you just for all of your work, in, including today. This is... Um, it's work that you're doing. I'm going to move this. Jason, remember you've got water on your bongo there. So. <laughs> um, thank you for the work that you're doing even now. We, we think of these times on Sundays as being Christian Sabbath. We think especially of a time of an anniversary like this being such a celebration that there's a kind of rest that goes on. But, but clearly, in fact, if you stop and think about it, that's not the case. I mean, when we come together, we're a bit at work. We're at spiritual work together. We try to give to one another, and we embrace and give hugs, and we ask questions, and we use our curiosity and want to find out more about how each other is doing, and we, we pay attention to sermons with all of our heart. We, we engage God during the communion in special ways. There's spiritual work going on. And I, I thank you today for your work. And I, I think especially there's some very special servants today. Right? We have people on sound. We've got uh, Roy and Jason and Tim and others doing musical instrumentation for us. We have people doing AV. We've got our worship team. We have ushers. We have preparers. We have people doing water and other things out there. We have people transporting in vans to make church possible for us today. And I'd love just to say thank you to all of those who have served us today. Amen, church. Maybe, maybe give them a little encouragement.
You know, so many of you, the work that you've done over the years, if you've been here a long time and you were part of that original team, or maybe you became a Christian in 1989 or 90 or 91 or 92, I want you to know that you are famous in Hong Kong. That over those years, I would talk about these stories from London and then the Birmingham planting and then the Manchester planting. And I, I remember when the, the Oxford House Church started. What a big deal that was to people in Hong Kong. And, uh, I know that we've got much more to come, but I want you to know that even though uh, people don't know you by face or if they saw you on a slideshow, they will have forgotten what you look like. They know your names, and they know the names of those churches, and that meant a great deal to young disciples in Hong Kong, China, and all around that continent. And I hope that you know that about yourselves and that you can take that away today. We're thankful for your spiritual work over 25 years together. Amen, church? I want us to talk about 25 years. I just... Um, as Andy was explaining, and by the way, thank you, Flemings, for loving us, putting up with us, housing us, feeding us, helping us wash our clothes, introducing your dogs to us, <laughs> letting the dogs sleep with us. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and thank you for all the years of friendship. We are really kindred spirits, and we care about the same things, uh, not only in, in, in the, the church building, but just... How to build with quality is our hope. I think that's something that unites us. And we're very grateful for Andy and Tammy and for all the leaders that we've met in the Birmingham church over these last several weeks. Please pray for the Greens, the Gluns, as we go to Berlin in January. Pray for us that God will be with us in very special ways. I, I was singing that song, Even Greater Things. That's a beautiful song. And I believe it or we wouldn't be doing it. I believe it or we wouldn't be doing it at 53 years old. I, when we announced that we were going to Berlin to take this job, I had uh, a very well-meaning brother come up to me at the Seattle congregation, and he said, man, I'm amazed that you're going to, to Germany. I said, why are you amazed? He said, because you're, you're not as young as you used to be. Yeah. <laughs> I said, go on. He said, I thought you'd be preparing for retirement at about this point, you know. Say more about that. Oh, you know, I thought you'd be kind of scaling back and getting ready for, you know, different kind of living in Seattle. I said, man, man, I'm only 53. I've got to work a little bit longer. Uh, and so it, it's an amazing thing to be able to go there. But I'm, I'm doing that because whether it's at the age of 50 or 53 or 63 or 73, at the heart of what we do spiritually is the understanding that until Jesus comes, we're far from finished. Amen. There's more to do. There's way to ways to build better. There's ways to reach more people. There's a richer and deeper story of our fellowship to build. That's always true, and it's always possible. And that's why we love the work, and that's why we're leaving America for the second time in our lives, and we're going to Deutschland. So please pray for us. Now, uh, as I thought about the 25th uh, anniversary, in January we celebrated Hong Kong's. 25 years ago in Hong Kong. And I, I thought about the answer to this question. I, I was asking the question, what made this possible? What made this possible in Hong Kong and in China? What made this possible in Birmingham? Or for that matter, in London and in the overall UK and the churches in Europe? What made this possible? We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that in the end, as Paul said, well, you know, in the end, all of this is possible because of God. We know that God gets the, the lion's share of the praise. But there are things that we do in collaboration with God that help make this possible. There are decisions and choices we make. There are things that we bring to the table. There are stands that we take. There are ways that we give that help make this possible. And I thought about what that was in Hong Kong, and I'll, I'll share two things with you today, one a little bit longer and one just pretty short. 
Ambition. Ambition. We think of ambition as a bit of a dirty word. We think of ambition as a worldly word. But Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 20, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. In all of Paul's journeys and travels, all the things that he'd seen and all the things that he'd done, he still was concluding later in life, I have an ambition to go where the gospel is not known. There are ambitions that are good and that are spiritual. There are worldly ambitions that we repent of when we become disciples. But there are godly ambitions that God can use. In the book of 2 Kings, is a very interesting, uh, sort of a, not an allegory, but kind of an example of ambition. Look in 2 Kings in the Old Testament in chapter 13. Beginning in verse 14. And let's read this together. Verse 14. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hand. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. This is one of my favorite uh, scriptures in all the Bible. And if you know the secrets of these symbols about the arrows and the bow and shooting the arrows and uh, what that meant, and I don't want to know it. Don't tell me. Don't wreck it for me. I like this passage exactly as it is, and I have strained over the years, especially in the era of the Internet, to not find out what all these symbols mean. I like the way it is. I see Elisha here in his later years that when the king came in to see him, he must have seemed like the, the 125th uh, regeneration of Doctor Who. And there he was, sick, and the king comes in, and he says... Get some arrows. Okay, let's get some arrows. All right. Open the window. Let's open the window for the old man, the old prophet. Take the arrows and shoot them. Boom. You know, I wonder if, you know, was anybody walking out there? <laughs> Here comes an arrow, you know, thump. The Lord's victory over Ram. Whatever you say, Elisha. Now take the arrows. All right, all right, I got them. Strike the ground. You should have struck them five or six times. And then Elisha died. 
And it reminds me sometimes of experiences that we've had with bosses at work or sometimes even with different disciples who were trying to help us or train us in some aspect of our life and ministry or whatever. And you, you think you're trying to do the right thing and then they move the goalposts. They, they, they move the pitch posts. They basically say, no, you know, well, you told me to do that. Well, no, I really meant this. And I wonder if he felt a little bit trapped by Elisha that day. What was going on in this passage? There's so many things that I don't understand and so many things that someday I will want to know. But one of the things I see is ambition. That Elisha chided the king. You struck the ground three times. You should have struck it more. And if I could, could, could twist that language a little bit, I think I would suspect that Elisha was trying to get across this special idea to the king, and that was, do you know what you really want? O oh, king, do you know what you want? Strike the ground. Struck it a few times. Do you know what you want? Do you really want to defeat the Arameans? Do you really want to completely destroy them? Oh, king, what do you really want? And I wonder as disciples after all these years, if we can answer that question today. What do you want? What do you really want spiritually? And I think this really matters because sometimes in our faith we are lost in what I call some spiritual smoke screens. For example, number one, I call it faith envy, where we always feel deficient. We're looking at someone else's faith and saying, if only I could have their faith. If only I could have, be as faithful as so-and-so. If only I could be as faithful as Andy. If only if I could be as faithful as Martin Luther. If only I could be as faithful as John Wesley. Golly, I admire him. And on and on and on it goes, where we're constantly feeling a bit deficient. And I suspect that our Lord Jesus Christ understood this because he spends so much time in his parable saying, you know what faith is? It's just a mustard seed. If you just have a mustard seed, you can do it. Because I think Jesus knows us that we always feel like my faith's kind of small and I wish I had more faith in thee. And I, I wonder about this. I wonder if what we really need, brothers and sisters, is not so much more faith, but a deeper, persistent knowledge of what we really, really want spiritually. Instead of complaining about our lack of faith, to look in the mirror and say, what do you want? What's your spiritual ambition? I know in Seattle we've been working on these groups now. I, I've uh, I wear the hat of evangelist and elder, but I'm also a licensed clinical therapist in the state of Washington. So watch out. Um, and so I, I work with clients in the Seattle area and help them with different problems and these kinds of things. And one of the things that I've been doing in the church that's kind of encouraging, since we tend to have small groups, we've been using what I call strength-to-strength -strength group faith work. And so within the context of our small groups, we've been doing these exercises together that are meant to unleash our faith. And it's been a wonderful thing to do it, and the results have been terrific. Uh, I'm going to be doing this in Berlin as well. I'm going to be training all of our small group leaders to think about this and do this. But the thing that's beautiful about it is that in these interviews that we do in a group format is we're getting in touch with, what do you want? What do you really want? And instead of getting sucker punched and snookered by Satan to try to get us to think about how little faith we have, we're able to get back in touch with, what do we really want? A second smokescreen is what I would call an oppressive number of agendas. The number of shoulds in your life. Romans chapter 14 verse 1 talks about not passing judgment on disputable matters. 
There's a lot of things in Scripture and a lot of basics about our faith. We saw today at the London Church in their welcome kind of uh, telling us their statement of faith, right? Some things that don't change, things that we know really are true and things that really are, we should believe this. We should stand for this, right? But there are many things that are just matters of opinion. And what I find sometimes, whether working with clients or talking with disciples in the church, it's interesting to me, sometimes people have so many shoulds in their heads. You know, I should be sharing my faith more. Whoops, I should be with my kids more. Whoops, I should be studying my studies at university more. Whoops, I should be fellowshipping more. Whoops, that didn't work either. I should be, I should, I should, I should be giving more in the fellowship. Nope, I need to be actually focusing on God more. So many shoulds just kind of beating us around like, like we're cattle or something. And what I find is that when we've got too many shoulds in our heads, after a time we get tired and we want to give up. Or we kind of get rebellious and just want to be free of all shoulds. We need to get in touch with what do we want. And so now when somebody comes to me and they say, tell me what I should do, I go, what should you do? I'd like to know what you want. Now, don't get me wrong. If they say I'd like to be a Satan worshiper, I'm going to say I'm against that. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. You know, I want to go to... You know, I want to make billions of dollars and step on everybody. I'm against that. You shouldn't do that. But we have too many shoulds sometimes, and these are oppressive agendas where you never really occupy your own spiritual space. You're still waiting for someone like me to tell you what you should do. Or some small group leader is going to make an ingenious comment, and now you know what you should do. Or you're going to see a spiritual movie or read a spiritual book that you bought in a bookstore, and that is going to tell you what you should be doing. And I ask you, what do you want to do? How many times do you want to use the arrows and strike the ground? What do you want? Some of us, a third kind of smokescreen here, I call this the holding pattern of God's plan. Now, I don't know about you, but in our family of churches, we have a tendency to study the Bible with people as they, they come to church and they want to learn about God. We usually go to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11, 12, and 13, and we talk about how this promise from Jehovah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I believe in the plan of God. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we believe that the plan of God is about concrete results. Now, when we became disciples, we'd have never said that, right? We'd have never, none of us would have said, I became a Christian in order to obtain blessings. It would seem weird. Two questions when you get baptized. You know, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. What is your good confession? I'm in it for the blessings. <laughs> That sounds great. Can now baptize you in the name of you know that would really catch you. You'd say, Can we sit down and talk a little bit before you, you know? So I think all of us at a cognitive level we would say, of course not. That's not why I became a disciple. And yet it's amazing, and I'm speaking from experience that I do not have time to delineate today. I'm speaking from experiences of sufferings, job surprises, troubles in my marriage. No offense. Troubles in raising a family where it's not as easy or as formulaic as I thought it would be. Not that I didn't work hard, I did. The advent of cancer in our lives and the, the toll that that's taken on our family. Things with our parents that we did not expect. Just like all of you. And so these things, you know, I could be very disappointed about them. And sometimes these things happen to us as Christians and we're saying, why does this happen to me, God, when it is just part of the human experience? We all suffer. 
We all have disillusionments, including in the church. We all have struggles with our relationships. That's right. And so if we believe that becoming a Christian somehow exempts us from it, we don't understand the plan of God. And I want to suggest to you that despite all these things, here's the plan of God in your life in the main. Ultimately, His plan is for you to go to heaven. That's good. That's a good plan. To just be with God, and no matter what we suffered and had our fingernails pulled out for the faith, whatever it was, to just be with God, that'll be enough. But while we're in this life, I want to suggest to you what God's plan is. It's for all of you to move to Berlin. No, just kidding. (laughs) Nope. I do believe this. I think God's plan for your life will be mainly manifest via your involvement in the body of Christ. It will be played out mainly with the body of Christ. That is the context mainly of my usefulness. Now, I'm useful in service to the poor. I'm useful in seeking and saving the lost as well. But here we are, this fellowship. Not all of us will be small group leaders. Not all of us can be founders of a congregation or go off to several cities and start new churches. Not all of us will be worship team leaders. Not all of us will be good at administration and help with the money. And we're not quite sure who we are and what we should be doing again. I think your role will be mainly manifest in this fellowship how we are in relationship. That is the defining thing. And if you doubt that, reread 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and following on your own. That each of us is a part of the body. Fingers and fingernails and elbows and wrists and other things. We're all in it together. And this will define your usefulness. Now don't get me wrong. God's plan of my life is going to include my relationship with Him and how I outreach and all these different things. But mainly, it's going to be manifest in how I am with you. And I still remember those early days at the University of North Carolina when I was 18 years old and I stumbled upon what I believe was the kingdom of God. I went to those Friday night devotionals and I don't remember what we talked about. I know we had our Bibles open. I know that we were singing. I know we were having fun. But what I remember was that fellowship. And we'd sit down on those pews from about 6 p.m. and we'd get out of that church building at about midnight. College students, right? Not all of us can do that sort of thing. But that fellowship, I remember the conversations we had. And I remember saying this all the time. I'd say, if any non-Christian could just come to this, which we didn't allow at that time. We wanted it to be disciples only because we wanted to have a, um, what's the word for We didn't want to be worried. We wanted to have that freedom to be who we were. And I remember thinking, if anybody comes to this fellowship and they stay here for an hour and they have the conversations that I'm having, they're, they're going to fall down and say, truly God is among you. Hmm. Here are the things we had, the safety to come as we were and to be who we really are. We could. We had the relief of setting our burdens down, including confession of sin. What a relief. What a relief to do it and not be judged. Hmm but to be helped, to be prayed with. I remember the scaffolding faith. I've been using this term in Birmingham this week, scaffolding faith where best friends are like iron sharpening iron and we kind of help each other get to the next place and the next place. And there are other ways for us to get strong in the body. Sometimes there's teaching. There's teaching going on right here today. Sometimes it's teaching. Sometimes it's an intervention. 
where someone's afraid that you're about to jump off a cliff and they go, can I stop you? I want to stop you. I think you're about to kill yourself. Don't do it spiritually. Let me help you. But a lot of the growth is this scaffolding faith of people just talking to each other about what's going on inside. And it makes us a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And two months later, you can't believe what a different person you've become. We had that. I think of the love as delight that we had in that fellowship. Or to, to redefine that more colloquially, we liked each other. We liked being together. We liked things in each other. And we would say, I like this about you. Well, I like this about you. Well, I like this about you. Well, I like these three things about Well, I like these four things about you. That, that was that incredible fellowship. It was this amazing loss of barriers and walls that we tend to build up in this world to make ourselves safe. We didn't have to do that. And I say, whether you've been in the church 25 years, 15 years, 10 years, 5 years, or 5 days, the main part of your life of God's plan, it's going to be played out like that. It is in these relationships that you build that will be the light of the world as Jesus predicted by your love for one another. All the world will you know you are my disciples. Amen, church? Amen. Ambition. What do you want? And I'll leave us with this last part. I said this would be shorter. The second thing I remember in Hong Kong was passion. Look in John chapter 2. You guys still with me? You're a patient people. Putting up with Americans in any context is a patient endeavor. Okay, in verse 12, another familiar passage. We've talked about ambition, but then this, this last piece, passion, I think it made this possible in Birmingham, passion. First of the passion of Christ, but also your passion. Verse 12, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and there they stayed a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. Just picture that. He scattered the coins of the money changers. Can you imagine Jesus doing that in the temple? Coming up to the... I mean, they, I, you know, I'm sure they didn't see him coming because he probably came up to them going, Oh, look at these coins. Pow! And then turning over tables and saying, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered it as written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Passion. This is what the disciples saw that was different. Their current leaders weren't passionate. They looked at Jesus. Look at the passion of that man. Look at the zeal of that man. Look at turn over those tables. How does he have the guts to do it? Passion. A friend of mine in Hong Kong at the 25th anniversary was doing a quote from Albert Einstein. Einstein, who said, who said this, I have no special talent. I am just passionately curious. Tell you what, I want to help with that kind of curiosity. <laughs> solve cold fusion in a few nights. So, I don't know, Al, I think you had some special talents too. But, he says, I have no special talents, just passionate curiosity. John Wesley, you're a great reformer. 
Now, I, did he really say this? On the internet it says he did, but I'm, I'm skeptical. But for today I'll say he did. John Wesley. When you set yourself on fire, people love to come and see you burn. <laughs> I hope he said it. Or somebody German, either one. I'm okay with that. When you set yourself on fire, people love to come and see you burn. I had some passions growing up. I was a cold warrior. My dad was a U.S. military officer, and so I grew up in the shadow of nuclear weapons, getting ready to fire all over the world. The Berlin Wall divided Berlin, red China. I, I, those things fueled me as I was growing up as a teenager to believe in good and evil, to believe in right and wrong. And no matter whether that was guided or misguided, God used that to spark in me this idea that there are things worth fighting for, and there are things worth persevering for. And I had that passion growing up. I just didn't know really where to direct it. And I remember when I went to Hong Kong, I, I nearly undid this. I, I, I knew that the Chinese culture was quieter. We're pretty quiet, right? And proud of it. It's called being thoughtful. Don't let any Americans come in here and tell you guys are too quiet. That's not right. You're very thoughtful. <laughs> And the Chinese are way more thoughtful, believe it or not. <laughs> because they're not only quiet, they won't move the whole time. You know. <laughs> That's passion. <laughs> and so I came in there, and for a while I was adapting to the culture because I wanted to be respectful and, and I wanted to be thoughtful as well, and I wound up being a little too careful. And so I couldn't figure out why the church wasn't really moving. I was trying to preach the word on Sundays, and it just, it just seemed like it was a little bit like a Bible made out of rubber. It was bouncing off people. It wasn't going into their hearts like a sword. It was like a Super Bowl, just bouncing off their foreheads and going all over the place. And So I remember going home. This was about, I'd been in Hong Kong September, October. So this was late October, and I thought, I'm doing something weird here. Something's wrong. And I went home, and I, I just happened to read this passage. And I looked at that, and I got tears in my eyes, and I thought... Okay, what would Jesus do? And so I, I got out a, I'm not an artist, but I got out a big piece of poster board, and I drew a table, and I drew some coins on the table, and I had them in stacks, and I put them up at, you know, I thought it was really cool to have them at different heights. And then I wrote on there, go scatter some coins. And I taped that to the back of my front door, so that every day when I would go out into Hong Kong society, not as a license for arrogance or recklessness. No. But a license for passion. Mm. Let it go. And I began to preach the way I felt God called me to, sincerely and from the heart and without any kind of holding back and preached in every way that I could. And I felt my blood boil again against the devil of hell. Amen. I wanted to say to Satan, get your garbage out of here. Quit pounding us and discouraging us and giving us these deficit stories about our lives. Knock it off in the name of the Lord. And what I was shocked by was how much the Chinese appreciated it. They just went crazy. And they began to invite all their friends. You won't believe this. Come to church. People were piling into church. I think that first year, 90 people were baptized into Christ. Next year, almost 200 were baptized into Christ and so forth and so on. Hong Kong's a busy place. It's full of skeptical people, just like the UK. But people love the passion of Christ coming out into the hearts of their people. Mm. So I asked myself at the age of 53, have I lost my fighting focus, passion, 
part of why we're off to Berlin. I felt that call. I thought, I could stay in the United States, and I think I might just kind of blob out or blur out. I want to go somewhere and feel the call and let passion go again. That's part of why we're going. And Lynn and I want to fight for a new campus ministry at Humboldt University. We, we want to fight for a new professional's ministry, even an entrepreneur's ministry, because we've got several of those in the church. We, we want to have Sundays that are devoted to family ministry, where we can have what we call family connections, so that the community can come and learn about marriage and parenting from a biblical perspective. We, we've got things we want to fight for again. Amen. Now, if you're a young person today, ambition and passion for you are like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's where you live. But it's not always in our wheelhouse as we get older. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene here, Israel's passion was asleep. The very people of God, the chosen ones, whose passion had fallen asleep. And so if that is true for you, do not despair. It was true for Israel in that day. And Jesus came and ignited passion again, as it may be for you. I think of these words, closing words, of one of your own poet laureates, Lord Tennyson, who wrote this. He said, Come, my friends, it is not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. Though much is taken, and much has been taken, has it not? For those of us that are older, though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not thou that now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, or we would say in the spirit, amen, church? Strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. It's not too late. There are even greater things. There's a newer world. Though much has been taken from us, much abides. And that which we are, we are by grace. We are one equal temper, temper of heroic hearts by grace. Strong in will, though weakened in body, and determined not to yield. Let's go to the Father at this time in prayer. And I'll ask the worship team to come up for our, our final song. Let's pray. God of heaven, when we gather like this, we want to honor you. We also want to draw near to you. We want to be close to you and understand you better. We want to bring our lives and our hearts to you that you might see us in a different way because we voluntarily give it up, though we know that you know our hearts. We come together on days like this, Father, to seek relationship with you. But we also come together to make choices about our lives and, and to decide what we want. Help us, Father, with that as we leave here on this 25th anniversary. So much good work that has been done. So much amazing chapters that have been crossed. The good times and the tough times and the even greater things to come. And so, Father, come in to us today your words to think carefully about our ambitions and rekindle our passions. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.